Oregon Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. It serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in Metro West. Everything's done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508-309-3416. Or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well. www.dorganramen.com Welcome back to the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled television shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. Tonight, we are talking about two more episodes of War of the Worlds, which is on the uh, box set or the individual season set. It's actually the last disc, last two episodes of the fourth disc in the original release. <laughs> so after we record this tonight, we only have eight episodes left for season one. And Mr. Zeneca has the plot synopsis now for the first of the two episodes. Yes. He feedeth amongst the lilies. Originally aired January 30th, 1989. The Blackwood Project investigates individuals who claim to have had close encounters. The team stumbles onto an alien plot involving implanting something into victims' bodies for the study of the human immune system, setting them free and collecting them later to learn the results. Harrison ends up even dating one of the victims, Karen McKinney. Which is very weird, but we'll get to it. So this episode opens up <laughs> with me thinking about uh, Mr. Zeneca's typical Friday, Saturday night before the pandemic. Oh, well, you know, on a good night. <laughs> yeah, you know, tying someone up to uh, St. Andrew's Cross and putting a bit gag in their mouth sounds like fun. And then cutting them open? Sure. I'm sure there is, there's probably some fetish for cuts and bruises and things like that. Oh, my God. This couldn't get more BDSM bondage-ish if this episode tried with the opening <laughs> sequence. And then you got the nurses who are all aliens crowding around it. It's just like, wow, this is like porn. Are they going to start pegging him? <laughs> uh, only if he hadn't have spoiled. They would have done some probing after that. Oh, yes. That's that's what I was going to go with, some uh, some probing. <laughs> Uh, but wow, what a way to open that episode, too, especially for the 80s. I mean, things are crazy in the 80s, but I, I just, my yeah, own, my yeah. own Do we know who and, the individual and they didn't is even getting the, uh, tortured? Uh, they didn't even have the bit gag properly in his mouth, either. Oh, okay. The shots yeah. were all wrong. Is they there anything else that they did wrong? They weren't tight enough. Oh, he could escape, could he? <laughs> yeah, he could have spit that out if he wanted to. Do we know who this guy is? Because I see uh, nobody. I think only one of the nurses is even listed on the credits for IMDb. Yeah, I don't know. There's not any mention of uh, victim number, blah, blah, blah. Huh. Interesting. One guy I want to point out immediately who shows up in this episode is Julian Richings. He's man with a hat. He's not really prominent in terms of a name, but uh, you might know him from Supernatural. He played Death on that. And he was also uh, Laura M in Man of Steel. And he was the weird janitor in Urban Legend, if you remember that movie. Mm, yeah. But he was also in 12 Monkeys and Orphan Black. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of people mostly know him as Death 
in Supernatural. He played it in uh, five episodes, and they had that Oh Death song played in the background. Um, and the witch, by the way, if you saw the witch, he was the governor, I think, who cast out the family in the witch. Ah. So, a, a really cool that, character actor. Uh, the, the victim that Harrison falls in love with uh, is played by Cynthia Bellevue. And she uh, plays the role of Karen McKinney, a Canadian <laughs> actress. And uh, she was most recently in Caitlin's Way TV series, but she was also in X-Men the Animated Series as Spiral. That's a character I wonder will ever show up in the uh, Disneyverse uh, that uh, could or could not be possibly entering into the Marvel Universe. If you uh, know anything that I'm talking about, Mr. Zeneca, do you have, uh, do you have anything, any idea? Mojoverse? Yes, but, okay, I won't give any more away. We'll, we'll move on, and I will tell you off recording what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of alien abduction talk in this episode. A lot of accounts of alien abductions and implants and probing, lots of probing in places. Uh, I do love the line from the movie uh, Paul, played by Seth Rogen, where he's like, uh, how, how, much, how much information can we get from a fart? Come on. Why does everyone think I'm going to probe them? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the aliens want to create panic among the humans. That's what one of the advocates says. Yeah, but but really, like, what they're doing is they're just gathering information. The jogger, yeah, true. But that's, I mean, that's what they say. You're right. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. When the jogger, is the jogger in the flashback scene, is that Karen? Yes. Okay, all right. So Karen as the jogger, which, by the way, with her hair off, she looks very different in the pink and the pink shorts. And then the aliens show up, and they're tall as hell. They're not short like they are in the original movie, by the way. Uh, they're not wearing their human skin. And they grab her, and they probe her. This is like reminds me of something, I swear to God, I've seen in like 100 hentai cartoons. <laughs> with these oh, three yeah. monsters, and they grab an innocent woman, and then things happen. <laughs> And they're doing a lot of these interviews in order to capture the, these close encounter, uh, first-hand interactions. And uh, Karen uh, has like 10 hours of missing time. She can't remember it at all. The other types of people that are interviewed have varying descriptions of the aliens, but uh, the closest was a giant frog crossed with a huge slimy walnut with three fingers on each hand. And remember, apparently in Karen's term, they were long-legged walnuts, too. Do you remember the woman in Ghostbusters 2 that Peter Bankman is interviewing in uh, World of the Psychics? Oh, yes, yes. And she's just like, he brought me aboard an alien spaceship that looked like the Holiday Inn and told me that the world was going to come to an end on February 14th. 2000 and whatever, or I don't remember the exact date. I remember one date. I think it's Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's Valentine's like, Day. Yeah, and she, he's like, uh, uh, like Valentine's an alien, Day. An alien spaceship to look like the Holiday Inn, huh? <laughs> like, oh my god! <laughs> and this woman just admit to being conned into having sex with a guy pretending to be an alien in a hotel room. Jesus Christ! 
I mean, that's what it seemed like on Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. But in War of the Worlds here, it's actually quite legitimate. Do you think they would ever get away with a joke like that today in 2021 in our cancel culture hashtag me too everything is offended, everything is wrong, can't make fun of anything anymore kind of and that's, that's just not true. It's, it's the, it, you, you suffer the social repercussions of what you say. So in this instance, I think you could generally make that same joke in Ghostbusters 2. It's all in the delivery and exactly how you portray it because it's never stated that in Ghostbusters 2 the lady was raped. You know, she might have had sexual intercourse with the alien. But that's really not stated. It's more implied. So I think you could do that that joke again. Oh, it is very funny. We have back-to-back episodes that have to do with alien abduction. And then the next episode, we'll get into right in a second, uh, a character that kind of reminds you of a man in black the entire time. (laughs) Um, So Harrison, what is this, his third conquest this season, by the way? Are we up to number three? You know, when when it started going in that direction, I I had to – put the show on pause and I'm like, really, really Harrison's going to do this to a person he's interviewing that is obviously traumatized. <sighs> okay. We're going to do this. Click. You know, <laughs> is it wrong what Harrison is doing? He's not yes. forcing himself on her. He clearly seems to have an affection for this woman because of his own problems with the aliens involving his parents being killed by them in 1953, 56, excuse me. Yes. I mean, it is very common for people to fall in love with their caretakers. And being that it is a common thing that happens, someone in a place of power like Harrison should be more than um, cautious about that and try not to instate that type of relationship because it is having to do with power. He appears to care for her just because he's helping and he's catching some sort of sexual vibes off of her and they're both being very flirty with one another. And I think that was just over the line, you know, especially to, for today, just because Harrison has so much power over her in that situation. Do you think he skips over the possible abduction, abduct, abduction role play fantasy with her? You think that might be a little too close to home? Yeah, that that would bring up some past trauma there. Okay, just just just, just asking you. Know. Uh, <laughs> the PDA in this episode was just like right there in the crowd. <laughs> like holy cow, Harrison is the Don Juan of this show. Let me tell you. But I know, I know. Next to the general, the colonel, Harrison is really the main character. Yeah. And I think it's because his parents were killed in the alien attack originally. Yeah, he's he's got more skin in the game. Susan is going to hypnotize Karen with word association. I thought that was funny. The, the word association and the Rorschach test that she's doing is actually like a legitimate uh, technique to find out someone's subconscious thoughts. Um, the hypnotism scene, I was looking at it very carefully because it is back in the 1980s when there was a lot of uh, interest in hypnotic suggestion and hypnotic regression to pull out alien abduction stories, this was actually a thing at the time, uh, it was found that hypnotists themselves, due to the phrasing of a question, was actually implanting ideas into the people's minds when they're under hypnotic suggestion. So in this case, it all is very fine until the very end when uh, Suzanne closes the hypnotic episode by saying, you know, that she's... um, 
while this all is happening, the aliens kidnap my supernatural guy, which I mentioned before, and I completely fast forward through this because it's boring, lamest lovemaking scene ever. I almost expected us to show Harrison with a bunch of back scars or her with a bunch of back scars or something that was supposed to be like, oh no, what was them? But we didn't get that. It's just a really dumb lovemaking scene. Moving on. Yeah, yeah. So the hypnotic, hypnotic regression ended with uh, Suzanne saying that uh, she's everything is going to feel very pleasant. There's no bad memories at all. Nothing but pleasure. You'll sleep well afterwards, and you feel wonderful in the morning. All of that stuff you really shouldn't say in exactly that like that to someone under hypnosis, because by saying that no bad memories, it could also erase things that are there sever connections in memory saying that nothing but pleasure might actually add a pleasure element on top of a traumatic memory which then will get into a little bit more of those kinky rape fantasy type of stuff which might not be good for her no but if you're totally into that with you and your partner by all means i've had a girlfriend ask ask me if i'd be okay with it and i'd be like (laughs) you really gonna have some trust with that i'm just saying Oh, hypnosis is everything about trust. Oh, I was talking about the uh, kinky abduction rape fantasy. Oh, abduction. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, when you're an actor. There's trust there, too. When you're you're in a porno, you've already signed away your rights and everything's okay that you're not going to sue. But because that's what you're into. But when you're with a a partner, make sure you've been with that partner for a while and you know the person inside and out. It's not going to turn around and bite you with a butt later on. Safe words. Definitely use safe words. More drama, I wrote down. Karen calls Blackwood. The aliens abduct Karen. Which sucks, because the next episode, it's like, Karen who? <laughs> yeah, it's, all about, and, it's all about the new character. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, is like, we don't know, there's not a to be continued after this episode. Right? We don't know what happens to her. What the hell is with that? Again, I understand we've already gone over the bad writing and all the problems, the production, blah, blah, blah. I hope this comes back because I know the reporter is supposed to come back at some point, the one that was turned into an alien, but I was really expecting previously on War of the Worlds. I know, right? You know, it, it's just that it seemed like they were they had built this up for a very long time in this episode, and suddenly she's dashed off and gone. Like, what? What? Where, where'd she go? And then the voiceover says, you know, that he believes that the aliens took took her. Oh, wow, your volume just jumped right back up. I wonder what is that? What is that? Weird. Okay, moving on. And unfortunately, this actress only has this one episode. Oh, no. Wow. Talk about, like, well, you know what what we call that in the comic book world, Mr. Zeneca? What? Fridged. Ah. Do you know what that means? Not exactly, but I've heard it before. Okay, so we had Ron Mars on the show, right, from Witchblade, the former writer of Witchblade. Ron Mars uh, basically came up with the concept, and it was coined by Gail Simone later on. Gail Simone's a longtime comic writer. Look up a lot of stuff she does, like Red Sonia, Suicide Squad, so on and so forth. Um, Birds of Prey is probably the biggest thing she's known for. Um, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, recently turned Green Lantern kid, his girlfriend, was snapped in half and stuffed into the refrigerator by a villain called Major Force. Ooh. Yeah. Let me just say, that would never happen to Lois Lane. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that is what's referred to as a girl in the refrigerator. It's when the girlfriend is murdered horribly to move the hero's storyline forward. Yeah, I'm not sure if it moved the storyline of this one forward at all, though. 
Yeah. So, oh, you're right, because we never see her again, nor do we care, because we're moving on to the next episode. <laughs> I, for the title of this episode, He Feedeth Amongst the Lilies, right. that's, actually, that's actually referring to um, the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. It's from an Old Testament book that belongs in the third section of the biblical canon, known as the Ketuvian. Uh, so if you want to find it in your modern Bible, Bible wow. it's not going to be there. Okay. <laughs> that was like, it, I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's part of the Hebrew Bible, but it's basically... Oh, a, gotcha. It, it, it's a story. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a collection of love poetry or in verses, and the title refers to lilies, being common and humble of a flower. So that is to um, illustrate women, and that this one lily was surrounded by thorns, and that okay. was to illustrate challenge. Yeah, I... Cool. And then uh, he feedeth amongst the lilies means that he plucked one of the lilies from her place amongst the thorns, and so therefore was saved by a man. Gotcha. Well, we're <laughs> going to take a quick break from our Bible uh, study. And uh, we will be back with the next exciting episode of War of the Worlds, which every episode seems to be a Bible study, which is fantastic. <laughs> and, my, and my focus area on the stolen Vasilius. Now, I'm a lover of short stories and anthologies. They're just so easy to read for someone with a busy life like I have. So today I'm going to talk about H.G. Wells' first collection of short stories, published in 1895, also the same year as The Time Machine. After the huge success of The Time Machine, audiences wanted more, so he assembled a collection of stuff that was previously published in periodicals from 1893 to 1895 and entitled it The Stolen Basilius and Other Instances, which is also the name of the first story in the collection. There are 15 stories in all. Because these were published in periodicals, sometimes they are less than what I'd expect from a short story, more like scenes from a novel. Like the first story, The Stolen Basilius. It tells of a bacteriologist that was tricked into allowing an anarchist into his lab. He brags about the danger of a special cholera bacteria he's studying, and it's stolen, and a small pajama chase occurred. The vial breaks, infecting the anarchist, but it was a vial of blue-skinned disease, and not really the deadly cholera he bragged about. The story ends right there. It makes you want more. What happened to the anarchist? What happened to the town? Why was there a chase if it wasn't a dangerous public toxin? This was more like chapter three of a novel. The second story, The Flowering of the Strange Orchid, is more fully formed. It's a tale of an orchid enthusiast who collected a mysterious orchid and grows it in his greenhouse. Because orchids rarely seed, the purpose for the flowering is unknown. This orchid starts to bloom, and the delicious sweet scent makes the botanist pass out. When his housekeeper checks in on him, the orchid is draining his blood. It's like Little Shop of Horrors before Little Shop of Horrors. She fights off the plant and saves him. The story ends when the greenhouse is shattered and the plant withers and rots from lack of a victim. Good story. It has a setup, conflict, and a resolution. The third story just has conflict. The story is entitled In the Avu Observatory. It is the scene of a lonely scientist as he is attacked by a giant bat the size of a man while looking through the telescope. There's no real beginning or ending to this one. He's attacked, he fights, and it leaves. The last passage just said that he'll never stay in the observatory alone again. The fourth story, The Triumphs of a Taxidermist, is more of a conversation and confession than story. The taxidermist brags about his skills and his love of all sorts of taxidermied creatures. H.G. Wells uses the N-word, saying how this taxidermist stuffed humans, too. 
The black man was used as a coat rack. But that wasn't the thing that the taxidermist confessed about. Strangely enough to my modern sensibility, he confessed about stuffing birds in such a way as to convince collectors that those were new species. So he confesses that he basically made jackalopes that people pay thousands for. But stuffing a black man? That's not the shameful thing. Wow. The Victorian 1890s were really awful. The next story uses the same crummy taxidermist character and goes into the bird con a bit more in the story A Deal in Ostriches. It's about a Hindu man that loses a diamond, supposedly because one of the five ostriches aboard, the boat he's on, swallowed it. The taxidermist tells a story where there's arguments, an ostrich auction, and the legalities of the sale. The first ostrich is bought by someone H.G. Wells calls the Little Jew. I know, right? And it's shot and dissected immediately, but no diamond. The auction takes off, everyone thinking there's now a one in four chance of finding the diamond. The taxidermist sells the rest of the live ostriches, and the story ends. Because the taxidermist wasn't there when the others were opened, he has no info for which actually had the diamond, and it ends. No twist. No taxidermist secretly stealing a diamond and blaming an ostrich. It's just a story how the taxidermist sold five cheap ostriches for an outrageous amount. The sixth story is called Through a Window. It is literally the story of an invalid man watching things out of his window and sees a manhunt in progress. The story is very centered on the infirmed man and his experience in watching and then being momentarily confronted by a knife-wielding black man. The backstory and the context of the action outside the window comes from a story told to him by his nurse. This story was the inspiration for Cornell Woolrich's detective fiction story, It Had to Be a Murder, published in 1942, which in turn was the source behind Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 movie Rear Window. The following story, number seven, is called The Temptation of Herringay. It's an interesting one. It's the story of an artist named Herringay who, while painting an image of a gentleman, he comes to the slow reality that a devil has taken over the figure within his painting. The painting has plenty of artistic criticisms for his work. The painting and Herringay argue and have a painting fight where the painting keeps wiping off paint and he keeps covering over the talking figure. All the while, the devil in the painting is offering to him to create a masterpiece in exchange for his soul. He forcefully declines until the canvas is a solid color and ceases moving. The artist never found commercial success, but does get to keep his soul. The eighth story is called The Flying Man. In it, a serviceman, a lieutenant, tells his side of a story where the native locals have told the tales of a flying man with black wings made from feathers. But his story is about him making a makeshift parachute out of an old tent and using it to ride the air currents to get over a ravine to the river below. That's it. It's a logical explanation to a supernatural folktale. There's no plot. The ninth story, called The Diamond Maker, tells of a conversation between the author and someone that looks like a hobo who claims to make diamonds. Despite his look, he speaks like he's legit and he created a bag of diamonds. Since at this time it was known how diamonds were created, and a few had been made in 1879 and 1893, man-made diamonds were a new technology when he wrote about it. The scientific instructions in the story seem plausible. However, since he used explosives for the pressure element, the diamond maker was accused of being an anarchist bomb maker, so he is on the run with a fortune in diamonds that he can't sell without being caught for blowing up the housing unit he was in. The story continues with an agreement between the author and the diamond maker hobo to meet later, but he never arrived, thinking that the meeting was a trap. The next story, the tenth of the book, 
called The Epiornis Island is the retold account of a man with a scar talking about his hunt for a great extinct bird called the Epiornis, which stands about 14 feet high. He was on the hunt for eggs, since complete eggs were quite valuable. He continues telling about harvesting three eggs from a black swampy pit, then battling people and forces that ended up with him floating in the middle of the Indian Ocean alone with the eggs. He ate two to survive and remarked how fresh they seemed. He found a deserted island like Robinson Crusoe and lived there for two years. Since this is a tale that's told using a framed narrative, unlike a lot of H.G. Wells' work, all the danger and excitement of the scarred man's story has no real punch. You know he gets out alive. So when the last egg hatched and grows into a giant of an emu-shaped bird and starts to get aggressive, you really don't feel for his life. He finally kills the bird and is rescued, having suffered a scar on his face as a reminder of his adventure. Story 11 is the remarkable case of Davidson's eyes. It's the account of a failed experiment using a large electromagnet where a man named Davidson has only his vision transported to an island in the South Seas. This is to say that his body was still in the lab, but his eyes saw a beach and a ship, birds, rocks, shells, etc. It is a curious tale where this man is cared for in his hallucination by his friend Bellows. Because his sight is by the beach, his body would run into things if he walked. After three weeks, patches of reality started coming through until his sight was fully transitioned to normalcy. Then the final twist is that two years later, a meeting with a naval officer reveals that the place of his vision was stuck in was completely real. It's explained as if in physics where space may be distant normally, but space can be folded onto itself so one can totally be in two places at the same time. Story 12 is called The Land of the Dynamos. This is a story that I'm not sure would be acceptable today. It's quite racially motivated. It's the story of a southeastern black man named Azuma Z. Not very flattering descriptions, either. He really can't speak English, but he's made into an assistant for a man named Holroyd, who is a racist and a bully. Holroyd and Azuma Z tend to the machines in a power station in London. There are three power coils, with one towering over the other two. The largest one becomes the god to which Azuma Z begins to worship. As his boss, Holroyd, kicks and abuses him by hitting him with copper wire, he prays to the Lord of the Dynamo for some salvation to him. The machine, the Dynamo, responds with clicks and whirs, similar to his native tongue, and asks for a sacrifice. Azuma Z ends up pushing his boss into some of the big coils and open wires, killing him instantly. While the death is ruled a suicide, therefore relieving Azuma Z of punishment, the machine is still hungry. One of the other managers is nearly given the same treatment, but the fight ended with the death of the black man instead. The last line of the story captures the main plot point. Quote, so ended prematurely the worship of the dynamo deity, perhaps the most short-lived of all religions, yet it could at least boast a martyrdom and a human sacrifice. The 13th story is entitled The Hammer Pond Park Burglary. First of all, the writing talks about three burglars and committing a burglary, but all the language is done like being a burglar is a professional job, much like a lawyer or an accountant. Very odd to read criminals doing their work as naturally as going to a desk job. The main burglar takes the guise on of a street painter to stake out the target of the crime, the Hammerpond Park House. Some other painters almost catch him because his paint didn't have the colors expected. The burglary goes wrong when the three burglars trying to get into the gate but are caught by the butler. However, because the first burglar had made such a notice about being a painter, 
that the butler thought he was a good Samaritan and is invited to stay the night to recover from the scuffle. By morning, he's gone and so are the diamonds. Getting near the end now, story number 14, a moth genus Novo. It's about two snarky scientists who lob insults at each other in the scientific community. Things like, happily, the entomologist's microscope is as defective as his powers of observation, and that Professor Pawkins' revision was a miracle of ineptitude. Much to the chagrin of Hapley, Pawkins died of the flu. People turned on Hapley, blaming him for their snarky fighting. With the loss of his professional combatant, he's lost without meaning in life. Then, one day, with the idea that he might pick a fight with another scientist, he noticed a moth of a new species on his tablecloth. He thought how his dead rival would have been so jealous of the discovery and tried to catch it. Other people couldn't see the moth, though, and said it might be a hallucination. But he convinced himself it was real, a new moth species, and his behavior is erratic trying to catch it. As the hallucination grew, he is institutionalized and pestered by a moth constantly that no one else can see. We leave him in a padded room, thinking it's the ghost of Pawkins, angering him till the end. The last story is called The Treasure in the Forest. It talks of a treasure hunt by two men. They searched for a shipwrecked Spanish galleon using a map one of them stole from a set of Chinese workers. This story is a little more than somewhat racist. He calls them Chinamen and yellow brutes. Quote, the life of a Chinaman is scarcely sacred like Europeans, unquote. Quite distasteful. The two treasure hunters run across a dead body of a different Chinese man next to the partial hole with the gold still inside. What morbid luck. While retrieving them, a thorn pricked the hand of Evans. Quickly, as they deal with the gold, it is evident that Evans is having a reaction throat swelling, sweating. Hooker got pricked as he tried to help Evans, then connected the dots, and the imagined smiling face of the Chinese man whom they stole the map from came to his mind as the poison took hold. That's it for tonight, folks. Good night. And we're back on the Dead TV Podcast with the next episode. The Prodigal Son, originally aired February 6, 1989. Harrison is kidnapped by a unique modern artist named Quinn, who's actually one of the aliens being hunted by his kind. He's mysteriously immune to Earth's bacteria, so the other aliens want to learn his secret through dissection. Quinn wants to set up a dialogue with Earth's leaders to arrange a peaceful takeover of the planet, as opposed to an all-out slaughter of humanity. And this episode aired the day that we're actually recording it, back in 1990. Yeah, we're keeping our time here. No, 1989. 1989. Um, so that's, that's kind of funny. And, uh, so this Quinn guy is a character I've been looking forward to because I think he comes back, but I'm not hundred percent certain his career went, <coughs> excuse me, his career went from 28 to 2000, pretty much lived in Toronto, Canada. And, uh, he is best known as the voice of Apocalypse on the X-Men animated series. Nice. Apocalypse is like a... Was- he was also on Battlestar Galactica, the old TV series from the 70s. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was Baltar. He was the betrayer of humanity. Uh, they really turned his character around very differently in the revival show, where he's like this very sexy, smart British guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, who gets to make out with uh, tall, buxom blonde number six all the time? I mean, how much does his life suck on that show? <laughs> Well, he's and, uh, actually in two episodes in The War of the Worlds, so we're going to see Quinn again. Uh, yes, yeah, that's what I meant, that he definitely comes back. So he's a recurring, a bit of a recurring character. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I was very ecstatic to find out that he was the voice of Apocalypse, 
who's basically like a Thanos-level villain for the X-Men, even though the one movie he's been in was terrible. So, Quinn's been trapped in a body since 1956. Yeah, so he must have actually chosen a young body back then. Correct. Um, And he's on the run from the police, and then he zaps the police and runs away, and we come to find out that the police officers, including the one who falls to his death, are actually aliens trying to capture him because the aliens want him for an organ in his body that can help them fight off the disease so they can walk among us, which is a plot line I think eventually comes back with him. But also there's stuff that happens at the end of season two. I don't want to spoil just yet as you have, sorry, season one, excuse me, that you have, because you haven't seen it. That's important to this plot line and wondering if the continuity makes any sense, but we'll get there. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, he actually reveals the name of the planet, Mortax. So I, I was curious in that previous episode that, you know, when the dossier of information was handed over, the name Mortax and where that came from, I have a sneaky suspicion that this episode was supposed to be before that episode. Because how would we know what the name of the planet is if we can't even, you know, in, unencrypt their language? Right. Very odd. Um also, that makes a lot more sense, too, when we think about how happy and jovial Harrison is, or Harry, as Quinn calls him, Harry. Um, yeah. And it's like, so he traded a romance for a bromance with an alien? I mean, whatever floats your boat, dude, I'm not going to judge you on, you know, what you like to, what, 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 you know, the type of people you want to be romantic with, but okay. Yeah, and Quinn's uh, art is actually art made out of light and sound with a few bits of modeling, that is entirely my bag, baby. You know, I do projection mapping, and uh, it's, it's my quarantine hobby, and uh, this was just an amazing show. What Harrison was looking at as he was in his studio was just brilliant. The starscapes, the lasers, the pr- prisms, it was gorgeous. Yeah, it uh, reminded me of, uh, definitely reminded me of a Pink Floyd show. <laughs> um, how did Quinn survive the years? It's just explained that he has an organ and an immunity to it, but it doesn't explain, though, that the bodies of the aliens cause, like, this radiation deterioration. We see that, and one of the people that visits the art gallery, he's already falling apart. Yeah, I know, and I'm not sure if it's because they take the bodies over to the radioactive areas or if it's the radiation is coming from the aliens themselves, because I thought the aliens themselves were radioactive because you could pick them up on a Geiger counter. But they haven't really used that in quite a number of episodes. So how did this body maintain itself with the alien in it? That's a mystery. Um, uh, Alien cop, that's all he's referred to as, so I don't know which one he could be, and there's no pictures of him. Uh, pretty much did this and nothing else. It looks like he only did, like, weird shows that we would cover. My Secret Identity, Maniac Mansion, Last Chance, all shows that we could cover one day, except for how often we do the shows. It would take us quite a while to get there based on our schedule coming up. So, But My Secret Identity would definitely be one of those shows I would love to cover. Well, I do have to give a, a short shout-out to our only Asian character in this episode, Jim Yip. He was also one of our Asian characters in Friday the 13th, the series. Oh, yeah. Guess yes. which episode? The one with the Asian characters in it? <laughs> yes, Tattoo. 
Uh, Randall Carpenter, who plays uh, Margo in the episode, also was on what famous 90s animated series we've talked about a dozen times? X-Men, the animated series. X-Men, the animated series. She was the voice of Mystique, the blue shapeshifter uh, mutant. Also, if you're not a familiar fan of the comic books, which is the correct continuity, she is the biological mother of Nightcrawler. Love that. Which, by the way... Effing A could, should have been a plot line in the X-Men movies, but I digress. She was also yeah. in Double Dragon, the animated series, and Garbage Pail Kids, the animated Garbage Pail Kids. series. But, yeah, some uh, credits to her name and then pretty much doesn't do anything else. Uh, she apparently played a uh, cannibal in Cannibal Girls. Yeah, it must have been one of those B films of the time. 1973. Definitely. But cool that she was the voice of Mystique, uh, so she definitely has that to her name amongst the X-Men fans. Um, all these X-Men people, we should try to track down the next one for the next episode and have them on. Um, speaking of comic books, do you know who I have coming on the show soon? Ooh, Todd McFarlane? Todd McFarlane, creator of Spawn and Spider-Man, uh, longtime yeah. Spider-Man artist for Marvel, yes. Uh, too bad we couldn't get him on here for when we were doing Spawn. Oh my god, right? Oh my god. I totally forgot we did Spawn. I gotta mention that to him. Hey, we <laughs> so covered every episode. God. Oh. <laughs> you need to have him do a station identification for us. I, I will do my best. I got ten minutes. I got ten minutes with him. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Yeah, cool. and I've already got like four other people being like, "Oh, can you mention the?" And oh, you should also talk about your. And I'm, I'm like, honestly, I don't think I'm gonna. I, I, I have probably no time to mention even Vlada to him, or like, I will passingly say. I, got, I did a graphic novel recently myself on Kickstarter or something. And if he asks, you know, he bites the apple, then I'll be like, oh, it's a thing. Publish it. <laughs> well, I still say that you should tell him that we reviewed your show. I'm, I'm going to at least say that uh, my one of my podcasts, not the, not the radio show that you're on recording this for, but my podcast covered every episode of Spawn. Harrison wants, or Harry, excuse me, Harrison wants to open up an interspecies dialogue, <laughs> the way he says it. <laughs> Yeah, and th- there's no chance the aliens are going to negotiate anything. No, especially because Quinn says that we're going to let 10% of the population live. The rest are going to become dead or part of us. And it's like, why the hell would the United Nations negotiate anything with an invading force that attacked the entire planet? This isn't like when, I don't know, Japan came over here during World War II and then we bitch slapped them with an atomic bomb and then they had to surrender. That's a little different scenario. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the title of this episode, The Prodigal Son, what do you think The Prodigal Son means? Um, you're like, uh, so it's not your biological father, but he's basically like, uh, you know, Dick Grayson to Bruce Wayne. Maybe, but wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. I, thought that's a, I thought that's what I meant. It was like I thought it was like a surrogate father kind of thing. And not really, actually. You know, everyone uses this term, but I don't think they use it in the context in which it's actually related. Oh, uh, okay. This is re- uh, this is actually from the Book of Luke, uh, fifteen eleven to thirty two. It's actually a story that Jesus tells his disciples about a man that has two sons. One son asked for his inheritance, and the dad gave it, and then the kid squandered it, like just absolutely squandered the inheritance. 
The other kid remained with his father, dutifully, you know, plowing the fields and everything else. When the prodigal son, which means wastefully extravagant, lavish, squandering of his wealth, when he returns, the father welcomes him in with open arms and then throws him a party. Dutiful son is upset, doesn't attend the party because he's upset that this kid squandered his money and now he's being rewarded, you know. But the father says that the prodigal son has returned home. So once was lost, was now found. And that's the reason to celebrate. So, you know, a lot of times the prodigal son is, means chosen in our um, society. You know, the prodigal son returns, like the chosen one returns home, you know. Um, but that's not really what it means. And that was kind of a surprising to me today. Hmm. Um. Hold on. And the prodigal son actually has to serve as a servant in the father's house because he doesn't get any more inheritance. So the oh. dutiful son still will maintain everything that the father owns when he passes on will go to the dutiful son. But it's just like that veneer of unfairness, I suppose. Um there are times in this episode, and I think it's the art gallery, or I'm not 100% certain, it looks like it's the set of Friday the 13th, the series. Oh, I didn't even notice. Yeah, there's one scene in particular where they're, they're like in a very like antique store type of setting that looks like they ran into the set of Friday the 13th. I don't know. That looked like an art gallery to me. And there were art gallery sections of uh, Curious Goods. Yeah, but Curious Goods was like, packed wall to wall with stuff, you know? And filmed right next door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Music the entire time is extremely intense, I put down. Yes, it definitely is. Yeah. Uh, Quinn's idea that Harrison is going to talk to the UN and then negotiate this um, <laughs> surrender <laughs> uh, is a laughable prospect. And Quinn believes that all the aliens will just fall under rule uh, under underneath him so that he can be the top dog, not the three advocates, not the council members, and um, it's just not going to work out that well for him. No, it is not. Um, I do love Harrison, Harry's uh, portal, uh, makeshift flamethrower, and he melts one of the aliens, and it looks like the Melting Man. Ever seen that movie? No. Tom Savini didn't do Friday the 13th Part 2 because he was doing, I think it was the Melting Man, or the Melting. Okay. Was it the, I'm sorry, it was the Melting. And if I'm wrong, you can leave a comment in the comment section below. I don't have IMDb up in front of me. Uh, but it, 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 there's, a, there's this famous, like, very melting face scene. And I swear I thought it was done by Tom Savini. And I might be wrong. Um, but uh, Savini left Friday the 13th Part 2 to do this film and uh, went on to Friday the 13th Part 4. But I might have the movie all wrong. My brain's a scrambled people. I've been out in the snow shoveling. So, uh, but, there, but it's a cool melting face scene. It's very awesome. And earlier in the episode, they point out the, uh, the guy points out, oh, this is the uh, dead Asian guy. And then there's the cop right there, probably the pile of mush. <laughs> yeah. Quinn is, Quinn lets Harry go. And then we think he's dead, but then he shows back up at the very last minute. Yeah. Cause he's just a, you know, a master of disguise. He just puts some construction equipment on, on him and uh, hard hat and passed right by him without being noticed. And we also have to remember that the uh, uh, black uh, iron horse mentions the general a few times. And then we haven't seen the general in a while, but the general is Susan's uncle. And uh, I expect him to be at this United Nations council meeting. 
this is a very small little area for them to be meeting. I was expecting like a bigger room, but it just honestly feels like they're being, they're shooting it in the green room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If this was an actual meeting of the UN, you would have everyone in that large council, but they do have smaller committees that meet for uh, side discussions. So this might've been just a, a side committee meeting. Correct. And that's totally what it could look like because of the, um, the secrecy of it all, they probably don't want every nation of the world to learn of the existence of the alien body snatchers, even though every nation of the world should have in record the invasion from the 1950s because it was all over the world. Yeah. Um, it, honestly, again, I understand that there's no, like, that, that, that you know, it, it's not swept under the rug and there's the, you know, the people are forgetting, but it just, it really feels like we should be better prepared for something like this. You know, and the selective amnesia, what, what was the reason why everyone doesn't remember? Uh, I think it was basically selective amnesia due to trauma. Okay. Yeah. It's just, are you kidding me? We watched that movie. There's like London and France and, you know, every other parts of the world. Yeah. But it, what can you do? <laughs> right. I know. It's a TV show, lower budget, stuff like that. But it's a cool callback to the original movie once again with Quinn. But they're retconning the fact that the aliens could do this whole invasion of the body statues thing ever since then, when it may, it's been made to believe that that didn't start until resurrection. Hmm. Right? Am I wrong? I guess, but they, the existence of uh, Quinn implies that they could jump bodies before they just didn't. Correct. By the way, in my hand right now, and I mentioned I've had this before, I didn't have it when we recorded it, I have... The War of the Worlds, The Resurrection novel, um, which I have not read in a long, long time, it is approximately 400 pages, and it comes with a cool little bookmark in the middle that you tear out of the alien's hand creeping over the planet. Oh, that's cool. The brown hand, not the green one. Still, that's cool. Yeah, and for a sequel to the original movie, I thought Resurrection still the best episode of the whole show. Don't you think so? I'd say it's pretty good. I mean, it's got the ships, you know? Which yeah. I like the aliens are the, okay, but come on, those ships, the sound effect is so cool. And I know it's yeah. probably very expensive for this that type of this type of show to do that, but that's still a lot of fun to see. Yeah, yeah. Because they're like they're the death machines. You know what I mean? Those are the, the we can't stop those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it would be a game changer for the aliens if they got their hands on their ships again. Right. Um, and we also learned a little bit more about the alien homeworld in this episode, too, which reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, other science fiction characters that have a homeworld that is about to go extinct. I'm trying to remember, but the aliens uh, in Independence Day, I don't think are ever named, and I don't think they're named in the sequel, thank God. And I hope Disney is not planning to do the third one, because Jesus Christ. It, it, listen, listen, people, if you have never seen Independence Day 2, don't ever watch it. It will ruin the first film for you. Aww. Don't believe that hype and that bull crap about, oh, that first film still exists. They can't take that away from you. You could say that about Ghostbusters because it's a different movie. It's a remake. It's not connected to the original in any way. But Independence Day 2 really does ruin the original movie. For one big reason, they kill Will Smith off on screen. You have to go on a website to find out how he died. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. They don't ever name the aliens of that, but if you remember when Data 
from Star Trek, the, the mad scientist who works at Area 51, talks about how they're like locusts and they've basically like eaten up all the resources of their home world. Quinn talks about how the aliens basically, the sun is dying and that's what's causing their planet to die because you can't live without sunlight. Um, yeah. You know, Krypton, one origin, one explosion story of the other is that the, the, the sun was going to explode and destroy Krypton. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the eventuality. All stars do that. Yeah. Thank God we'll be long dead before that happens. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, seriously, we will, you listening to this podcast right now in 2021, you will be dead before our sun goes out. But if you're listening to this podcast in 300, 500 to 1,000 years, let us know what you think in the comment section below. <laughs> if you've invented time travel a thousand years from now before the sun is about to explode, like in that episode of Doctor Who with Christopher Eckman, you know what I'm talking about? Please time travel back to February 7th, 2021, and tell us what you think. <laughs> that's my best William Shatner impersonation. That's all the time we have here on the Dead TV podcast, unless you had any other notes. Uh, that's all the notes I have. And you can find us on the Dead TV Podcast on Facebook. We will do a better job of updating the Facebook page. I've been a little busy with my graphic novel, Vlada, A Dracula Tale. You can totally pre-order it if you want to. Um, and other works that I do. You can also find us on Twitter at ChrisBSAV and at Elegantly Kinky. And you can send us an email, thatradiopar at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support the podcast, buy us a cup of coffee. Buy, have it set up to buy me a slice of pizza. You can make a donation that way or spot, or go to uh, Dorgan Ramen Noodles in Ashland, Massachusetts and tell them Dr. Chris and Mr. Seneca sent you. That's all the time we have here for the Dead TV Podcast coverage of War of the Worlds. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. See you in two weeks. Good night. Do you love what you hear on the podcast? Please go to Buy a Cup of Coffee. The Radio Horror link is in the show notes or it's on top of the Twitter page. Or you can just go to buymeacupofcoffee.com backslash Radio Horror and you can help support Goth Girl Horror, and the other podcasts here on the Radio Horror Network. Donations go towards cloud service and new equipment. Thank you.